are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is BaptistChurch.com. I want you to be seated. Just be seated for a moment. I'm going to do something a little different here. But what I, what I want to say to you today as a congregation, I want you to hear me closely. Outside of, your, of as a parent, you teaching your children the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what we're going to be talking about today, everybody look this way, is the most important thing outside of the gospel that I believe you can teach a child. It is the most important thing that you can learn as a human being and more so as a man or woman of God. Now, let me tell you, if you, hey, listen, if you don't learn this trait, this attribute, if you don't incorporate this into your life, look this way, you will fail in every relationship and you'll fail with God. So are you curious? Now, let me begin. Let me read some things to you. I want you to, we'll do a little review, but I want you to listen. This is an individual. He wrote these words. He said, as a, because we've been talking about resilience, the ability to be strong in life, the ability when things hit you and things are going wrong, the ability to bounce back, right? And, and so we talked about resilience and building that not only in the life of your children, but in your own life as well, that, that intestinal fortitude, that strength. Listen to this. He said, as a kid, I got teased a lot because of a distinguishing birthmark on my right cheek. My mom and dad used to tell me that the mark, this birthmark, was where an angel had kissed me. But the kids at school did not see it that way. They would make such smart remarks as, hey, what happened to your face? Or wipe that stuff off of your face. Of course, it was a birthmark. He said, I couldn't do that. He said, my parents divorced when I was seven years old. He said, football became important to me. He said, I played through college. I played in the Rose Bowl. He said, I thought I would go the first round in the NFL draft, but in, instead went the second round to San Diego as a backup quarterback. He said, when I finally got to play for San Diego, he, suffered, he said, I suffered an injury that nearly ended my career. I was eventually traded with the prospects being slim due to my injury that I would ever have any career or longevity in the NFL. He said, I landed with a team that people referred to as the Aints. The derogatory name for the New Orleans Saints. He said, I went on to lead the team, the Saints, to repeated post-game appearances and won the Super Bowl. Along with many other leaders, I walked the city of New Orleans through a catastrophic hurricane called Katrina. And I wrote down here as I read that, he was speaking of his resilience, this ability, this intestinal fortitude to bounce back 
Overall, he had 19-year career with the NFL, 19 years. He completed 6,867 of 10,161 passes, a career average of 67% for 77,416 yards. 400 and 547 touchdown passes and a passer rating of 98.4. His name was Drew Brees. He played the most consecutive games with touchdown passes, 54. 12 years, he was a pro bowler. He went on to talk about in his biography, in his writing, this ability to be resilient, to survive, to make it. I watched one time Bell Grylls, you heard me quoting out of Bear Grylls, this British distinguished soldier who uh, takes celebrities on survival type uh, trips. He threw the ball, Drew Brees was with him one time, and Bear Grylls, this man's man, this, uh, this celebrated soldier of the British Army, said, Drew, throw me the ball like you would throw it in a game. It scared, it scared Bell Grylls, uh, Bear Grylls. He, he, he literally was shaken for a moment. Drew Brees smiled and said, I threw it half the speed I would throw in a professional ball game. You know, we've been talking about building strong children, building resilience. How do children survive? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were under the Babylonian Empire, under the most powerful man of that time, Nebuchadnezzar, and they had resilience, the ability to survive. We looked last week at our brains, the plasticity of your brain, 86 billion neurons, electrical computer wizardry that is beyond anything man could possibly create. Your brain is fascinating. Every time you have an experience, your brain is mapping it out. Your mind is taking your body, everything, and mapping out what looks to be to neurologists like trees that are in your brain. If it's a good experience, the tree looks beautiful. If it's a bad experience, the tree looks gnarled and twisted, almost grotesque like a monster. These brains, these minds, they're plasticity. That means that you and I, listen, as one writer said, we can teach children to navigate life problems with a positive attitude. I introduced you to a woman by the name of Dr. Caroline Leaf in her book, How to Help Children, How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Messy Minds. In other words, helping children learn how to navigate life and keep their mind clear. How important that is. And she's a neurologist. She was born in Zimbabwe, so I kind of leaned that way. And, and then she's been a, a great neurologist. She's done nearly 40 years of research. Listen to what she said. She said in a section on resilience, she said, your child's innate resilience, she states, indeed, given that perils and strains of life in life are natural, they're unavoidable, they're inevitable. Parents, caretakers, teachers have a responsibility, listen to this, to help children develop their innate resilience, 
to teach them how to grow and learn from the diverse life experiences that will come to them. Yes, we need to, she wrote, yes, we need to protect our children as they grow into adults, but we also need to give them the tools to manage failure and painful experiences because these are inevitable, an inevitable part of life. Now listen to this. This prominent neurologist continues. I would go so far as to say that overprotecting our children means that we're teaching them how to manage life even when we are no longer there to safeguard. Let me read that again. I would go so far, she said, as to say that overprotecting our children is a danger to your children. What you want to do is you want to teach your children how to navigate the problems of life even after you're no longer there. You're building your children for adulthood. Now, last week we looked at Jesus in John 6. You remember? We had thousands, 15 to 20,000 people in John chapter 6, and, and, and they've been there all day. They're hungry. And so they get into this discussion as to feeding the crowd. And you remember Jesus looks at Philip and he says, Philip, what are we going to do? Now we said this, Jesus could have simply just answered the problem himself, right? He didn't have to see, he didn't have to say anything to Philip. He could have just said, have the people sit down, I'll create bread and fish. He didn't do that. He presented Philip with a problem, and the reason he did this is because he was trying to build resilience in his disciples because they're physically, one day Jesus physically would not be there. He, he, gives them, he gives them a problem, and he says, now, Philip, what are we going to do about it? You remember? Philip pulls out his calculator. He pulls out his smartphone. He begins to punch the numbers. He's sitting there doing this and that. And finally, all of a sudden, he looks and he says, Jesus, it would take eight months' salary to give this crowd one bite. Andrew, Peter's brother's out there. He's kind of... He's kind of uh, doing a little survey of his own out among these thousands of people, and he comes back with a McDonald's Happy Meal. And he said, I found one little boy who has a meal, but what is this among so many? A sack lunch. And we said this, that Jesus was building resilience in his disciples by putting a problem in front of them, helping them see that without him they could not solve that problem, and thereby training and building this boldness, this intestinal fortitude. It's critical. Last week we said there are two principles that you and I cannot, we can't ignore if we want to build resilience or build resilience in our own children. Principle number one is this, parent, listen, if you bail your child out, if you solve all their problems, if every problem that comes their way, you in essence solve it, pull them out of it, refuse to let them deal with it, then in essence you're crippling them. We said this, in fact, I was reading this book, or a quote, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's written by two authors. I can't, uh, one is named Jonathan Haid, the other is named Greg Lukanoff. But it said this, it's, they said, we have developed, listen to this, we have developed a modern obsession with protecting young people from feeling unsafe. That in many ways, listen to what they said from their research, is inhibiting children's ability to feel able to solve life's challenges. That's why they're staying home. 
That's why they're not growing up. That's why they're falling into chemical dependency. He, they went on to make this statement. We are inhibiting children's and young people's ability to face the problems of life, the challenges of life. This is possibly one of, listen to this, one of the several causes of the rapid rise in rates of adolescent depression, anxiety, and suicide that we are observing today. I got a call this week where a 10-year-old was basically mishandled by a teacher, went home and killed herself. This is the world that we're living in. So how do you build this quality of resilience? This ability, this intestinal fortitude. The second principle we looked at last week is children grow and we do when we are, listen to this, when we are pushed outside of our comfort zones, outside of our own resources, when we're stretched, when we are stretched beyond our maturity, a level of maturity. In other words, we're pushing not only in life, in problems and difficulties, but we're doing it in our faith as well. Dr. Henry Blackaby, who wrote Experiencing God, a Canadian. Sheila and I've been with him. I was with him in Kenya. Uh, in Africa. I uh, Sheila and I were with him at Wycliffe Bible Translators in England. Uh, we've sat, ate with Henry Blackaby, Dr. Henry Blackaby. He wrote a book or a study called Experiencing God. It'll affect your life. Do you know what his conclusion was? Most of us never push ourselves enough to ever experience God because we live our life in the comfort zone, in safety, Right? He said, listen to what he said. I wrote it down. He said, um, he, he made this statement. He said, most of what we call faith does not require God. We do what we can and not what God can do. Did you hear it? Let me read it again. Dr. Henry Blackaby in Experiencing God states, most of what we call faith does not even require God to intervene. We do, listen to what we, we do what we can do and not what God can do. And we said last week one of the problems that we have in parenting children is we don't want to see those that we love, especially our children, uncomfortable in an uncomfortable place. We don't want them to be upset. We don't want them to be hurting. So what do we do when we make the mistake of overprotecting them? They never grow and mature. They never grow and mature spiritually in their faith, and they never grow and mature in resilience, and therefore we cripple them for life. And you and I can do the same thing. We can live our life safe secure. I'm not going to take any chances. I'm not going to push the envelope. I'm not going to step out in faith and do something that will require God to intervene. If God doesn't intervene, then I fall flat on my face. We live safe. We live comfortable. We're masked up, vaccined up, and we're living in fear like we've never lived in fear before. And God says, my people, my children, do not walk that way. But how do you build resilience? What is this trait that causes some people in this room to, ex you, you will excel 
while others will miserably fail. What is it? I want you to listen closely. And you may say, well, that's simple. It's self-awareness. It's being aware of yourself. You say, well, that's a strange thing. But parent, after 40 years plus in ministry, if this quality is not taught, your child will fail in career, in marriage, in relationships, and ultimately even possibly with God. What do I mean? Listen to this. It is the ability to step outside your own body, as it were, and examine yourself by the indwelling Holy Spirit to listen to how you sound, how you act, how you live your life. You ever had your mom look at you and say, did you hear how you sound just then? You know what mom's trying to do? That's our critical teaching moment. Because mom is saying, do you realize how you sound right now? You know what she's saying? Honey, if you don't develop some self-awareness, you'll fail in every relationship in life. Did you hear how you sound? You ever had a parent look at you and say, look at yourself. You ever heard that? Look at yourself. In other words, what the parent is doing is they're trying to make their child, did you hear the way you just said that? Did you hear the tone of your voice? Look at yourself. You know, this ability to be aware of how I am appearing to the people around me. Am I bragging too much? Am I talking too much? Am I being insensitive to somebody who may be hurting? Am I ignoring others in a conversation I'm having with one person? Am I walking up to a conversation that I really need to be backing out of because I realize this is a personal conversation? I have social skills to which I'm able to identify. I need to move back. This conversation is undoubtedly personal and private, and I need to step away from it. Do you have the ability to look at yourself? To see how you behave? It means here again, stepping out of yourself to see your countenance, your expression, your body language. You know, when you do counseling as long as I have, having a doctorate, doing counseling every week, I'm constantly reading people's body language. A lot of times people will never look up. They'll talk to you like this. They're looking down the whole time. And you know, sometimes at a certain point as a counselor, you want to look and say, why are you looking down? You've not made eye, you've not made eye contact with me one time as you've talked about the problems in your life. You see that volume. Hey, listen, you ever do this? You know, sometimes you know what this is in body language? This is the attitude of, I'm not listening to you. In fact, what I'm trying to do is figure out how I'm going to answer you, and I'm not listening. I've, I've learned that you have to be very careful when you cross your arms because crossing your arms says a volumes in body language. But when you open up, you hug a child. Can you hug a child like that? You hug a child with your arms open, right? You know, some people through the years of over 40 years of ministry, you know how some people... You know how some people look in a worship service? You know what they're doing? I don't like nothing going on here. Body language is unbelievable, but let me ask you this. Do you have the ability to read yourself? 
do you have the ability sometimes through the indwelling Holy Spirit to step back and think, well, I wonder how I sound when I said that. Dr. Jordan Peterson made this statement in his book. Listen to this, parent. Twelve rules for life. You know what he said? I, I love this. I couldn't help but laugh. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Now, why would he say that? Because let me tell you, parent, if you don't love your child, or let me tell you, if you don't like your child, I'm not talking about loving, you love your child. But you know, you ever seen parents, they say, you know, I love my child, but I don't like them right now. Well, let me tell you, if you don't address why you don't like them, then you're going to create in them character and patterns of behavior that they're going to carry into adulthood. What you don't like about them, and you're loving them, and you're just weathering through it, hey, they're going to have a boss, a coach, they're going to have a friendship, they're going to have a spouse one day that's literally going to hate you. Because you know why? Listen, listen to what he said again. He said, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. If you don't like them, imagine how others may feel. You see, it's teaching them social graces. It's teaching them awareness, the ability to stand outside themselves. So let's look. Take, uh, go to 2 Corinthians. That was the introduction. 2 Corinthians, I want you to see this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, I want you to hear what Paul says. Now, this is a very, very ungodly, carnal group of people, but he still calls them saints. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 5, now look at it. Dog ear that page in your Bible. Paul says to this church, and this is part of the problem at Corinth, this is a very fleshly, carnal church. Now, watch what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he says what? Examine who? He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Listen to what one writer said here. He said, Paul is addressing a carnal church. Matthew Henry said this, we should examine first whether we be in the faith Prove our own selves whether Christ be in us or not. In other words, we're examining ourselves, first of all, and asking this question. Everybody look this way. Sometimes we need to step back and we need to ask this question, do I look like a Christian right now? Do I in any way look like the character, the nature of Christ? And that's what Paul's saying here. You know, he's saying, first of all, salvation, we need to ask ourselves a question, are you truly saved? Look at it again. Verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Faith, test yourselves. I wrote down here, if the Calvinist is correct, then why examine if this is, decision has already exclusively been made by God and man has no free will? You see... It's more than this, though, because Paul says, first of all, he says, examine, make sure that you're a Christian. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And watch what Paul says. He says, test yourself. But he goes on, and the meaning is much deeper. It's not only that you and I are in the faith, we're living out the faith. 
Let me give you, you don't have to turn there, in Lamentations 3.40. Lamentations is a book in the Old Testament written by Jeremiah. Listen to what Lamentations 3.40 said. It says, let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. Let me tell you, you, you want to know how I got saved? I looked one day long and hard at me, and you know what I said? A Christian doesn't act like that. And in my office, I got down on my knees as a young man, and I put my face in the chair in front of my desk, and I said, God, I don't know whether I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm saved, but I know by the behavior that I'm observing as I examine me, that doesn't look Christ-like. It doesn't look like you. And God, I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you, and I've repent, I'm repenting of my sin, and I'm asking you to come into my heart and to change me. You know what the biggest problem today in people coming to Christ is you and me. That's the biggest problem. And you know why? Because there are too many times in our lives that we don't act like Christians. And there are too many times that we don't step back and we look at ourselves, look at our actions, listen to the way we talk, listen to our mannerisms, our body language, listen to how we treat other people, how we act, and look at ourselves and go, you know, if that's a Christian, then something's wrong with me. As the old Negro spiritual said, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, that is standing in the need of prayer. But you and I thought, secondly, what's the great deterrent to you and I examining ourselves? We tend to examine who? Everybody but ourselves, right? I call them the splinter police. You remember what Jesus said? He said, you, you're looking at a splinter in your eye, and, 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 your, and your brother's eye. You're saying, hang on a minute, let me, let me look. Okay, bend your head back, let me pull up in your eye up here. You got a little splinter, and you got a massive two-by-four coming out of your own eye. You see, the deterrent to you and I examining ourselves and building this, this true resilience, this true identity in Christ, is that we spend too much time being splinter police. We're looking at everybody but ourselves. Well, I wouldn't be this way if I wasn't in this marriage. Well, I wouldn't be this way if I'd have been raised by better parents. Well, I wouldn't be this way if I had a better job. Well, I wouldn't be this way if I had education. That's a bunch of hogwash. We're too busy. So Peter Marshall said this, Oh God, when I am wrong, make me easy to change. To, he said, Oh God, when I am wrong, make me easy to change. When I am right, make me easy to live with. When I'm wrong, God, show me that and help me to change. And God, when I'm right, make me easy to live with. You remember King David, psalm writer? David sees a beautiful woman. We all know the story. Bathsheba, she's bathing. He looks at her and he says to his servant, go get her, I want her. I'm the king, I can do what I want. And the servant said, is that, hey, wait a minute, whoa, that's Uriah's wife. And David said, I don't, hey, hey, listen, the servant, you just go get her. You remember David brought her and committed adultery, had sexual relations with her, and then sent her back home? 
And then lo and behold, she sent a message and said, King David, I'm pregnant. David said, I got to cover this up. He wasn't going to repent. He wasn't going to do it right. David wasn't looking at himself. He was looking at the situation. How can I fix this? It definitely wasn't David looking at himself and being repentant. What David did, he said, I know what I'll do. Hey, I'll send and bring Uriah home. I'll get him drunk and I'll get him to sleep with his wife. And then, then this pregnancy can be covered. He'll think it's his baby. Hey, guess what? It all works out. I mean, in the end, he kills Uriah. He then has Bathsheba. He looks like a hero. He brings her into the palace. Everything's going well until one day this prophet by the name of Nathan shows up and Nathan walks into his office. Secretary says, King David, there's somebody here to see you. It's Nathan the prophet. Nathan comes in, he looks at King David and he says with that long bony finger, he tells him the story of a rich man who took a poor man's lamb and killed that poor man's lamb, ignored his thousands of sheep, took that poor man's lamb that was like a pet at his table, took it and, and, and slaughtered it and killed it and served it to his rich guest. Then David, King David, boy, Nathan's telling him this story. He jumps up, he explodes. He says, that man should repay with his life. And then he remembers the Levitical law, he says, four times. He should pay four times over. And then Nathan says, thou art the man. You know what David made the mistake of doing? David wasn't looking at himself. David wasn't looking at how he was living his life. David wasn't looking at the decision he was making until a godly man came and said, David, you're the man. You remember when the woman called an adultery? All the religious muckety-mucks, all the big religious scribes and Pharisees and Sanhedrin, they all came, came and they threw this woman. She, she was probably nude, naked, caught her in the act. So they bring her and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. The crowd is watching. None of them are looking at themselves until Jesus is doing this. Lord, Levitical law says this. This is what they're saying to Jesus. Moses, the Mosaic law says well, she's to be killed. Or she's to be killed. What do you want us to do with her? It's the only time, you know, this is the only time Jesus ever wrote. We know of. You know what, you know what scholars say? That he was writing the names of the people standing around there. All of a sudden he knew every one of them. Started writing their names. And then he looked up and he said, you without sin, cast the first stone. And the Bible says this, listen to this. The Bible said from the oldest to the youngest. Let me tell you, young people, you know what the problem is a lot of times with young people, the generation? You're harsh, you're judgmental, and you have no mercy at all. And before you amen me, be real quiet. From the oldest to the youngest. You know why? Because the old man that was in the circle, he had a lot more baggage. He had a lot more to repent of. He had looked, he looked over his long life. And you know what Jesus was saying? You without the same sin cast the first stone. And the Bible said they all begin to walk away. Why? Because the biggest problem in us looking at ourselves is we're too busy looking at everybody but ourselves. 
Because let me tell you something, a man or a woman who has a true evaluation of who they are, their strengths and their weaknesses, that kind of man or woman will be far more successful in life and they'll be far more resilient because they have an honest appraisal of who they are. I always remember Alan Kevin, a man who years ago came here, a man who had a drug problem, a man who did celebrate recovery. Kevin said that he was getting ready to have a surgery. They came in to give him whatever painkiller, whatever anesthesia or whatever, and he said, what are you giving me? Now he's laying down in a hospital gown getting ready to have surgery. She said, sir, we're going to give you this. He said, I can't take this. She said, sir, this is what the anesthesiologist and the doctor have called for. He said, I can't take it. The nurse started to put it into his line, and Alan's back there shaking his head, she uh, agreeing. Kevin, he's a big man, grabbed her arm and said, I said I can't take that. I have a drug problem, and that'll throw me backwards, and I can't do that. And if it means I don't have surgery, so be it. That is a man who knows his weaknesses. I... I got up Friday morning just heavy. And uh, my battles, watching TV or whatever, have a TV in the bedroom, take it out for a while, put it back in there, take it out for a little while. Now, for some people, you'd probably think, well, that's not really that big a deal. But I was burdened about it. And the other thing, I was bur burdened because Ethan was sick. And I'd had a dream about Ethan that something happened to him, and he was sick, and he just couldn't get well. And I'll never forget, I, just, I went out and I was walking my dog and I just was crying. People who see me walking that dog, they see me smiling with a, with a smile on my face, greeting people. But I was weeping, I was crying, walking my dog, praying God heal Ethan, but God heal me. I came home, I took the Roku, I ripped it. I didn't walk back there and daintily disconnect it. I ripped it off the dresser, nearly flipped the TV off. I walked to the kitchen, and I got down on my knees in that, in that garage, and I took a hammer, and I pounded it and beat it, and then threw it into the garbage. I didn't just toss it in the garbage. I threw it in the garbage. Some of you listen. You are not where you need to be with Christ because of this. Some of you are not where you need to be with Christ because you're caught up in friendships and relationships that are carrying you straight down the broad way that leads to destruction to hell itself. And you know why? Because you won't step back and look at yourself. If you're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict, pornography, whatever that issue may be, whatever that addiction is. If you're an alcoholic, you stand up in a company of alcoholics and you say, I'm an alcoholic. You know what that is? That's a man looking at himself, a woman looking at herself. I'm not talking about something superficial. T sat over here smoking and drinking for years in a tent, homeless man. Tried to help him, he didn't want any help. Never forget one day a woman came in, older white woman, and she came in and she just began to bawl and cry. And she said, I'm, I can't even have a relationship with my children because of my drug habit. I need help. Sweet Kanya, sweet Kanya took that woman who was living on the streets, carried her, took her into her home, began to pour into her, began to help her see Christ and God's purpose and plan for her life, began to try to help her see herself. 
Because isn't that really it? The prodigal son came to himself in the pig pen. Right? And I'll never forget, Kanye just had a trophy. She just came back, and about a week later, she came back, Willie remembers this. She came back about a week, a week later, brought her to the church, came into the office. Well, Kanye came into the office, and she said, let me tell you what happened. She said, well, I pulled up out here. She saw T over there, and she ran, and I haven't seen her since. You see, it's not a matter of just seeing yourself. It's getting your attention off everybody else and seeing yourself for who you truly are. And for most of you in this room, the honest truth is that you probably won't do that. Because it's hard to do. Now, you know, let me, let me give you a quick example and then we'll close. Take a left, go over to Genesis chapter 4. Now, I want you to see this. Genesis chapter 4, because Paul says in the New Testament, he said, examine yourself. So let's look at God doing this. And uh, I'm, I'm mindful of time, okay? So I'm, I'm aware of time. But look at Genesis chapter 4. Now, everybody, listen, let me, let, we all know the, this is sibling rivalry. This is Adam and Eve. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain, is a, he, he raises crops, vegetables, grain. Abel is a shepherd. He raises sheep and cattle. And they come to worship God, okay? Now, they, they come to worship God. Now, let's pick up Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant, gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions. That means the very best from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So do you see it, verse 5? So Cain was what? So Cain was very angry and his face was what? Downcast. Now watch this. I want you to see this. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? In other words, what God does is God looks at him and he says, he says, uh, Cain, what's your problem? You're downcast, you're pouting, you look depressed. What's going on? You know what, he, you know what God was saying to Cain? He was saying, Cain, look at yourself. Look at you. Look where you are. Why are you so angry? Uh, I wrote down here, why this mood? Your body language is screaming. This moody, pouty, sulking, this, uh, this idea. And I wrote down here, listen, parent, it is not your goal to get your child into a good mood or entertain them when they're pouting in, in, these, in these places right now. That's not your response. You have not been called to entertain them and get them in a good mood. But God looks at him and he, and, he, and he says in verse 6, he said, Cain, look at yourself. What's your problem? Number two, discover what's wrong. Look at what God does in verse 7. He says to Cain, he says, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Now look at this, verse 7. Do you see it? If you do what is right, you 
Will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. I wrote these down real quickly. Number one, he can read Cain. And what he's saying to Cain, Cain, look at yourself. Look where you are right now, Cain. You're at a very, very dangerous place right now. Look at your demeanor. Look at your body language. Cain, you're simmering. You're angry. Cain, you're in trouble here. Look at yourself. Number two, discover discover what to do about it. God says in verse 7, he said, Cain, you can make good choices. Look at yourself. Look where you are right now. And right now begin to make some good choices. Cain, you have the power to turn this situation for good rather than resent the situation and therefore more so your brother. You can learn from this, Cain. He's like a parent talking to a child. Look at yourself, Cain. Cain, look at me. Cain, you're at a dangerous place. Cain, you can make good. You can make a good choice here. Sheila used to do that with three-year-olds. My wife, for twelve years, taught three-year-olds, and she would look at a three-year-old and say, "You can make a good choice here." Or if they got in trouble, she would say, "You made a bad choice. Now you're going to live with the consequences." The ability to read yourself. Some of you, let me tell you, some of you are one step away from ruining your life, and that's for people who may watch on social media as well. You keep hanging around the people you keep hanging around. You keep watching the programs you're watching. You keep listening to the music that you're listening to. You keep walking the walk that you're walking right now, and it is a matter of time before you're going to fall flat on your face, and your life's going to be a mess, and the reason being because you did not look at who? Yourself. God said, God said Cain, look at yourself. You can make a good choice. Number three, the tragedy. Listen to what happened. What did Cain do? Did he listen to God? No, he didn't. What did he do? He killed his brother. I wrote this down because this is important. You know what a lot of us will do? We'd rather kill truth than listen to it. You know, we can talk about Black History Month, but we forgot last month that Dr. Martin Luther King died for truth. There's a cost to being the voice of truth. When you're the voice of truth in somebody else's life and you're looking at them and you're saying, hey, listen, your life is going to be a royal mess if you keep going in the way you're going. I'm not a big Kelsey fan, but Travis Kelsey tells this. He said he got in trouble with drugs. One of the star receivers tied in for the Kansas City Chiefs. He said, the coach threw me off the team. My football career was over with until my brother came to my aid. My brother, his brother who plays for Philadelphia, his brother came, and you know what he said to the coach? He said, I'll deal with my brother. I'll, I'll keep him on the straight and narrow. And he looked at this coach and he said, and I give you my word. Give you my word, I'll do whatever I have to do. I'll put my name on the line. And Travis Kelsey today, is an NFL star. Why? Because he said his brother stepped up when he didn't. You see, the truth of the matter is, as God said to Cain, he said, Cain, he said, uh, you, can, you can grow through this. This is a problem, but you look at yourself, Cain. You're in a dangerous place. Cain, you're getting ready to make some bad choices. Cain, don't do that. Please don't do that. And you know what Cain said? Cain went out and the Bible said he brutally murdered his brother Abel. 
And then he tried to cover it up. And you know what God says when he runs into Cain? Hey, Cain, where's your brother? He's a smart aleck. There's a lot stronger language I could use here than the military would use. He smarts off to the creator of the universe. Am I my brother's keeper? Is he my responsibility? And God looked and said, Cain, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And let me tell you what Cain does. Cain kills truth. And if you read on here, we don't have time. We're going to close in a moment. If you read on, let me tell you what Cain does. God tells Cain, he says in verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. God okay, he kills his brother. The Lord, verse 10, the Lord says, What have you done? When Listen, your brother's blood cries out. Now, verse 11, now you're under a curse. You're driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on earth. Now look at verse 13, because that's what we do. We kill truth. And then when we make poor choices, watch what happens. Cain said to the Lord, My, my punishment is more than I can bear. He's pouting again. He's saying, you know what he's doing? He's playing the victim. You know why a lot of people don't ever come to themselves and they don't listen to how they talk? They don't watch how they act? They, they carry, they're, they're, they're unmerciful, uncompassionate. They're harsh with people. They're judgmental. There's, there's nothing in them. They do an enormous amount of damage to the cause of Christ and to the testimony of the church. They don't look at themselves. They don't take time. They look at everybody else. Right now, there are people in this room that are going, you know, this is for somebody. I wish so-and-so was here. I wish they could hear this. Well, congratulations, you're in that group, not looking at yourself. They're too busy looking at everybody else. And you know the other thing? And when we're sometimes forced to look at ourselves, you know what we do? We claim to be the victim. I'm the way I'm, I am because of somebody else's fault. Everybody listen, that will, not, that will send you straight to hell at the judgment of God. God won't even listen to that. You can talk about you can talk about your mom, your dad, your lack of a mom or dad. I grew up in a home where my mom had a psychiatric was in a psychiatric hospital when I was 5 years old. I ran away from home when I was a kid on a tricycle. You can say it was the way I was raised. It was I didn't have a dad. I had a bad mom. I had mean siblings, and, and they got all the preferential treatment. Boy, you can go on with the list. I'm in a country that doesn't give me opportunities. It's this government. It's this. It's that. And on and on you go. And God says, I'm not even listening. God does this. Hmm. He's not even listening. Because this, as we said, is the old spiritual this is God it's not my brother it's not my sister it's me oh Lord you know why because in that moment when I was walking down that road walking my dog and I was praying for my grandson and I was scared and I was crying you know what God said before I answer that prayer look at you you know why some of you in this room can't get a prayer answered 
because you never look at yourself. God said, look at you. And you may say, well, you know, what, what do I need to do? Hey, listen, I'm not here to tell you what you need to take a hammer to. I don't like my phone. In fact, my phone is that you get glass cuts because the entire back of it is busted. You know, whatever you have to do to get where you need to be in relationship with Christ, you need to do that. And let me tell you, that'll never happen until you and I look at ourselves. God, I'm looking at me. God, there's some things that need to happen. God, forgive me. Let me be that person that does that. Hey, let me close with this. I'm just making sure there's a couple of people that are not in this room. Last yesterday evening late, my daughter called and said, Dad, there's a five-year-old boy missing. Now, I've got two of my grandkids here, and I didn't want them to hear this. And they don't know this until... And there's a picture of one of my, grand, my grandson who's with us holding this boy in his lap. Five years old, three, he has three dogs. He has a, a basset hound, he has a hunting dog, a healer, and then he, has a, uh, he had a puppy. And those dogs, if you, you know a hunting dog, they get on the trail, they're gone. Those dogs all of a sudden took off, and this little five-year-old boy began to chase those dogs. And he was chasing those dogs, and before long when the parents came out, thinking that he was out there just playing with the dogs, he had wandered into the woods. They haven't found him yet. Through that storm you and I slept through last night, he was out in the middle of it. At 3.30 this morning, my daughter texted me and said, Dad, they called off the search because they just simply can't maneuver out here in this weather. She said they'll pick it back up at 7 o'clock in the morning. You know what I thought? I thought, wow. I thought, here's a little boy that spent all night in an unbelievable storm while I slept. And I thought, how often do we as a church sleep in our narcissistic, self-centered world that is all about us and about nobody else? You know, there's a story, and let me close with that. Where's Jeffrey or somebody? We can go and start getting ready, but I can't believe you. Y'all are not already heading. <laughs> but anyway, there's a story years ago in the cornfields of uh, Kansas or Idaho, one of those places where corn grows this tall. You get out in the cornfield, you can't see. And a little boy had wandered out into a cornfield, and he had gotten lost. They called the entire community out, and the community came, and they began to spread out like fingers all through that cornfield looking for that little boy because they knew that night the temperature was going to be frigid. It was going to be below freezing. The next morning on the front page of the paper was a picture of a little boy curled up in a fetal position. He was deceased. He had frozen in the night. And what happened was this. They were going out, just all of them going out in different directions like this. 
when finally an old farmer said, wait a minute, he called everybody back in. He said, listen, why don't we join hands? Let's join hands and stretch across this field and walk together hand in hand through this field. The next day on the front page, those people were gathered in a massive circle around this little boy who had died. And you know what the caption was? Oh, that we had joined hands sooner. world doesn't care. Hey, world doesn't care about race, conflict, and prejudice and all that. The world doesn't care about economic, the rich and the poor, those that have it and don't have it. The world doesn't care about all, none of that. The world is lost sinners on their way to hell. And you know what they want? They want the body of Christ, black and white, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. They want the body of Christ joined together, going through a field like a, like a mighty army sweeping through this world and bringing children. You may say, well, i got too much going on right now. I don't have time to tell people about Christ anymore. Well, let me ask you something. What if that was your boy? What if that was your child, your grandchild, lost in a wooded area? I get you, I bet you'd care then. And we got a whole world of lost people. And you work with them, you go to school with them, you encounter them every day. And some of us in this room, you're sour, you got a bad attitude, you're pouting all the time, you're moaning and groaning, you're a victim of everything, and you're, you're a disservice to the cause of Christ. I have preached this sermon with my chest hurting the whole time I was preaching. And at one point, prayed to prayer, God, if I die, let me die now. That little five-year-old boy, if he's still alive, is counting on people to join together and to find him. He needs you to be in the search and rescue, but you can't do it with the baggage you have that often is stuff you brought on yourself. God, let me see me. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you. And Lord, I've, oh, I preached with everything in me. I'm hurting, strained, and I may have strained. I don't know what it is, really, and don't care. And I know, dear Lord, there's just a handful, and we're down a little bit today. The crowd maybe not what it normally be. It is, but I, I know that, God, you've brought the people that are in this room to this moment right now. And I know, God, you want to do something in their life that, that will change their life forever. They'll become a, a child of the King and give their life to you. There'll be others that will step out and be a part of that army that says, I'm in the search and rescue, that gets up every morning, salutes and says, my commander-in-chief, Lord Jesus Christ, help me to be sensitive to how I behave. Help me to see me through your eyes through your indwelling Holy Spirit, and then God make me a tool in your hand to tell a lost world. Oh God, let it begin in me. If revival's to come, let it begin in a small circle where I draw it, just like our worship leader through tears a moment ago reminded us that the pain and hurt that comes in our own personal individual lives is God fine-tuning our hearts 
to be merciful, to be compassionate, to be concerned about a broken, hurting world. Lord, there's some institutions that they're sick. Church is sick, government's sick, law enforcement is sick, parts of the medical community are sick. We've got, we've got, we've got all kinds of institutions that have allowed money, power, wealth, popularity to come into the degree they just don't operate well, but the body of Christ has been called to be the salt, the light, the yeast. But Lord, we can't do that until we first look at long, hard look at ourselves. God, let it begin now. Lord, do what only you can do. Put the mirror of Jesus Christ in front of us so that we begin to ask, Jesus, help me to be like you. Lord, we pray if any decision is to be made that people will come willingly. I don't want to coerce anybody. May they come today. If they need to be saved, say, I need to be saved. They come for prayer. May they just come and say, I need prayer. May they come and kneel at this altar, Lord. Some of people in this room, they don't need to tie me up. They need to just go to the altar and pray. I need to be here. Sheila needs to be here for broken, hurting people that are, that are in the, the chasm of deep hurt and pain or that are lost and need to be saved. So, Lord, may we look at ourselves as we look to Jesus. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.